Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. It's Sunday, and that means another episode of It's the Real Classic. This was your idea. Why do you think that these episodes are important? I think that we have this deep catalog of episodes that tell people's stories, and in a time when everybody is so quarantine-focused, there are certain things, certain conversations that will take you out of that. Um, I think there's a, a comfort in listening to someone talk about getting through some real hardships, and that is what our podcast has sort of excelled at. Yeah. And in terms of this specific episode with Sycamore, I think that here's somebody that, well, especially when the world is sort of on timeout, I think that it's important to listen to people who sort of see the future and are very good at calculating and dismantling the institutions that there already are. And Sycamore, who has worked with Travis Scott and YG and a number of other artists, is just incredibly smart and focused about the choices that he makes. Yeah, this is an episode that through the five years that we've been doing podcasts, people revisit again and again. People who work in the industry who have been like, yo, that's inspired me, that put me on, that led me down the right path. People who just enjoy the music business and people who just really like to hear a compelling story. Sycamore is that guy. He's really uh, well-read. He is a lot of fun. He's a funny guy, and he's from the mud. He's from out there in Brooklyn. He made it by his own bootstraps. He went and sold mixtapes. He opened up a, a, a mixtape store. He worked his way into the label system and then took it over on his own terms. It's a great episode. If and you haven't heard it, it is here. If you have heard it, it's still here. Yeah. So check it out. And again, we have a 307 episode catalog. You can go check out those episodes or just wait for an It's the Real Classic Sunday when we pull out an episode from that catalog for you guys to enjoy. If you guys are really rocking with us like we know you are, there is a way to help us move through this together. And that is on patreon.com slash it's the real. It is super important to help artists, especially during this time. We are two people who have a commitment to putting out great work every single day during this entire thing, and then every week, when even when we're not going through a thing. And so if you want to join us on that, go to patreon.com slash it's the real. We will greatly appreciate any contribution. And shout out to everybody who has made contributions already. Salute to all of you guys. We're going to make uh, some some new rules as to how we give back to you guys uh, in this crazy time, uh, more content, specific content for you guys, Zooms and the rest. So look out for that. Patreon.com slash It's The Real Jeff. When do you want to get into this episode with Sycamore? Right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Throwing Bows in the Stew, a.k.a. Dexter's Dabratory. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Dr. Wallet, a.k.a. Open Wide. Yeah, Sycamore's going on. Yeah, this is a waste of time with It's The Real. Yo, sick. Thanks for coming through. Um, and Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Thank Christmas you. to you. We've known you for, for so long. Mm-hmm. We know you since like 2007, I feel like. Yeah. yeah. We're going on a cool decade together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think the first time we may have met you, um, you were obviously running your blog. You were known throughout the internet as like an early adopter, especially in hip hop. And we were like, we want to, you know, we know 
your relationships with your artists. We were doing sketches at the time. And we were like, we want to work with some of your artists. You approached us and you were like, hey, do you guys want to work with Nicki Minaj? And we were like, nope. You're like, no, for real. She's like, she's this is before she signed with Wayne. She's really popping out there. She's going to be really cool. And we're like, no, we're good. We're mm-hmm. good. I remember that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the, the second, you remember the second time? The second time we met? The second the second idea we had? Um, I do remember that, but let's not talk about that idea, only because we're going to use that for our, our TV, TV show. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so that's coming? That's making a comeback? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. cool. That would have been big, man. I think that would have been the real video for it. Listen, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we had management at the time that was not into it. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's funny about that, that, that particular song. It's like... I had management at the time that was not into it either. Yeah. They thought I was crazy. Like, this song will never get played on the radio in a million years. You know what I mean? They thought I was a lunatic. Then, you know, a couple million records later, you know? I feel like that's a sort of theme throughout your life, you know, that people don't understand maybe your vision. I feel like I've made a living off of it now. And it's just like, uh, you know, some I feel like in life sometimes I'm supposed to champion. I think my role in life is I'm supposed to help champion people who are like under under people who, I'm supposed like champion people who are like underrated people don't see it you know what I mean and I, I, I like the have nots and that's that's really what I, my favorite thing in life is to prove people wrong so I, I actually wait for that moment like an athlete like oh you guys don't believe oh check this out and I think I think that's something that the three of us share actually and the reason why like we've been successful too is just because it's like alright you don't think this is going to work or we take a chance and do something totally different and we do it you yeah. know but let's. I mean, we should start and say like, who's sick more? Like, for, you are an A and R. You've been a DJ. You've been a, a mixtape DJ. You've been blogger. Blogger. A blogger yeah. Yep. For Double XL and um, for and for yourself. Yeah. Um, if if you were to explain to like our mom what an A and R is in 2015, what would you say? I'll tell your mom. I, I help artists make albums. You're not. You're not helping. And as you said at the Revolt conference, you're not helping them make like necessarily just one single or whatever you're you're doing a complete project yeah because you know i was you know it's funny you say that last christmas this christmas i was explaining to my aunt and my father and my aunt's husband i guess mm-hmm. and they're all like in their 50s and 60s like exactly what i do for a living and they were just looking at me like <laughs> you know so you know my my role as you know now is i guess because the job where I work doesn't really matter to me. It's just like, who's going to pay me to do what I really love to do? You know what I mean? But at, at uh, Epic Records now, the title is VP of a and Creative Director. And my role there is to, as a creative director, is to translate the artist's vision to the rest of the company. You know what I mean? And as an A&R, is to help make the album and get records out. Like, the way I like to think about it is like little mini movies. You know what I mean? Like, the album is the movie. And it's sometimes like My Crazy Life of YG. That was like a Western you know so you weren't reinventing the wheel it's like a Clint Eastwood movie right. you know take 10 spaces you know shoot you know it's not it's really simple you know but it, the, the Travis Scott album was more like a um, 2001 A Space Odyssey it's definitely Kubrick yeah. <laughs> you know it's very, it's very it's very clockwork orange you know and that one you kind of have to just let it go where it goes you know what I mean so it, it, that's how I like to look at it and I look at the artist as the relationship between a director and a, and a um and an actor they have to trust me that you know, as an A and R, you're like the first. You're like the first fan in the studio. Like, I'm like they're testing out the music on you, so they're trusting me that I don't make them look stupid. You know. Well, let, all right, let's take it back. You're originally from Brooklyn. Well, I'm originally from Trinidad, Trinidad. and I was uh, came to Brooklyn when I was five. And where'd you live? In uh, Crown Heights, Flatbush. For your whole time in in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I, my whole time, I got kicked out of my mother's house when I was like 14 or 15. And I had to go live with my dad in the Bronx for like a year. Why'd you get kicked out? 
you know, you know, when you're raised by like a single mother, you know what I mean. You, you, you start after a while, you start getting real big. You're moving around. You need like a, a man's influence. And she, I said some things, and she, and the hits weren't like working anymore. Yeah. She used to really like crack on me, like bow, bow. But uh. after a while, I'm like, you know, you can't hit me anymore. Now you got to go. And I went to live with my father. And my father's like a really like pseudo intellectual guy. So and and he's really boring. So, <laughs> so all I would do there is read books all day, and it was a long train ride to Brooklyn every day because I would still go to school. high school in Brooklyn, yeah. and, it was, and I used to get off of Fordham Road. So that was about an hour and a half train ride every morning. Every morning. So I, that's when I just, you know, I would read. I'll get into my albums, and I would just do that. You were doing Showtime. You were dancing on the <laughs> poles and everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. For my basketball team. Yeah. <laughs> Selling candy. Yeah. <laughs> so then, so then from there. I started getting known. As, I used to have a, a, a huge CD collection. I used to take in a binder every day to school, and so people used to know me for having the music. And I used to have every album. And then um, from that binder, people used to ask me to make albums and CDs, then make them mixes. And that's in between the mixes I would make for my CDs, and then uh, Napster came out, and I was just making custom mixes, and I would just tag them at Sycamore. And that was like my hustle. And I was selling to the students for $5 and the teachers for 10 You know what I mean? Yo. The teachers have more money. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one day, you know, my, my friend Terrence, he really changed my whole life. It was uh, it was 2001. Um, it was right after 9-11 hit. And um, I wanted to go work for Nike Town. And, uh, you know, and I, I really want to work for Nike Town. You got 40% off sneakers. You know, and, that's, and in Brooklyn, only people care about sneakers. So 57th Street? That mm. that big Nike town, yeah. Yep. So I did the application. I got in. Everything was straight. I was like, boom, I have to be rocking. You know, what I mean? <laughs> every, I'm gonna have every joint. I'm gonna have everything. And then the 911 happened, and um, they put a freeze on all the hirings. And then he said, well, we can't hire you anymore. So I was real mad that that they took away my workspace. So I was like, well, I got to do something that they can't take away. I mean, I should jump in and just say 911 changed all of our lives. Well, yeah. And <laughs> and uh, yeah. <laughs> But I think if 9-11 never happened, I would I would have been I was I think I would have been Nike, worked for Nike. I think I would have been a career Nike employee. Really? Yeah. Did you work at any shoe stores before then? No, but I had I, that summer I did an internship at Goldman Sachs. Oh, for real? Because you ever seen Precious the movie? Yeah, yeah. You remember that small classroom she was in? Yeah. I went to one of those schools, but the good thing about those schools, they give you a lot of opportunities. So the school is basically funded by Goldman Sachs. So I did internships at Fox News Channel, Goldman Sachs. Oh my God, you were a Republican, like <laughs> yo. <laughs> it was just like all those things. It was real weird, you know. You know, I think, you know, I think back about it, and then, um, what did they make you do at Goldman? I worked in the human resources department, which I, I never told anybody this story. So uh, I used to work in human resources. So they just gave me like you know grunt work to give a high school student. So I don't know, like remember back in the day, like in two thousand, like you used to have to go in a chat room, but it was like all dark and black. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So we were on like the Goldman Sachs, um, you know, infrastructure, whatever you call it, right? And we were talking, and they were talking about rap lyrics, all the other interns, and somebody kept trying to. St- Rap, but you steal lyrics. So I was like, "No, that's from a so and so song." I forget who it was. I mean, Bravey. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they still they're stealing lyrics, and I was so mad. So I copied and pasted from um, uh, O H H L. Yep, yeah, yep, the lyrics yeah. Uh, website. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was like, "Look, you stole this from this website," and that, that got on the radar. Human resource, they were like, and they sat me in a room and they sat me down. They're like, "Listen, you know." Why are you saying all these words on a, um, on a, on the Goldman Sachs forum? I'm like, well, no, it's just it's, it's music. And they reprimanded me, and I was like, I, I still got to work there, but I was on a suspension really? the whole time. And Goldman Sachs were posting rap lyrics. That's like when I w- I worked at uh, AOL and I had to download um, Paris Hilton's porn tape for work um, <laughs> on their server, which was fine. But then when I downloaded music, 
then they like suspended me and they they made me like I wasn't allowed to take my computer to work anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Those 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 big corporations they think different. You know what I mean? So I, I between the Goldman Sachs thing, the Nike f- putting the freeze, it really put a bad taste in my mouth to like working for people. So my friend Terrence, he said, you know, you should, you know, the mixtapes you do. He said if you do one, you could sell them around the city. And I was like, because I bought mixtapes all my life, but I was sure. like, I never knew how to sell them. Said so I'll, I'll take you to Canal Street. And I introduced you to the people, and that was like that moment, like in Pain and Full when he was in the cleanest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was it, you know, because he showed me that. So I went home, I made a CD because Anthrax was hot at the time. Okay, that was like uh, how ISIS is now. Everybody was freaking out about Anthrax. I thought you meant the band for so a second. I. I, was I was like, like right. well, I mean, a little bit late, like more like the '90s, but I think your timeline's off. You know, so people were freaking about about having the letters in the mail. So I called the first mixtape Anthrax on Wax. Dope, right? And I, I think the first song was like a cannabis f- f- uh, diss to Eminem. Oh my. Oh my god, yeah, I no. would not have listened to this mixtape. You know, I used to be a huge cannabis fan. You know what I mean? Like cannabis, I used to be a real fan of lyrics. Have yeah. you told anybody that before? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I nerd out I nerd out with people when it comes to lyrics, man. Like, I used to just listen to every all his DMX versus cannabis tapes. I used to cannabis king of cannabis. Right? So when cannabis went at LL, you were on Team Cannabis. When cannabis went at Eminem, I was Team Cannabis. I was Team wow. Cannabis all the way. Wow. Until he got weird. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, is that is that pre or post him like painting himself in silver body paint? I was still cool with Man, I was still cool with the party paint. He 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 started talking all like that military shit, and then you know when he when what happened the other day when he took out the lyrics and he started messing up when, during a live battle. Oh yeah, that was just like my childhood was over. <laughs> but you know what? He's the underdog that deserves to have your influence. Today. Oh my god, you, you should you work with cannabis. cannabis back. Yeah, no one can bring cannabis back. <laughs> and and then I so that mixtape, you know, I, I ended up pressing about twenty five copies. I sold 10 on Canal Street. Then I went downtown. This place called On the Low and Bargain Bazaar. It's like downtown Brooklyn. So I'm 16 years old at the time, you know? I mean, I, and I'm just, I, I go into the store and I tell them, like, look, I'm popping up town. Yeah. I'm selling my CDs. He's like, whatever, kid. Just give me, um, give me 25 CDs. And I, had, I only had 15. So he gave me the money. And I, they both gave me 250 a CD. So I had some money in my pocket, right? Like, okay, cool. This is cool. I got a little, cool, little hustle, you know? So I didn't have a cell phone at the time. I just had a house phone. So I got a message on the house phone. There's a guy from on the low downtown. His name is Dre. And he said, yo, kid, where you been at? I've been calling you the whole time. He said, listen, your CDs, they sold out. You know, I need um 100 more. And at the time, I only had my father's CD burner computer, and they burned one CD every 20 right. minutes. Oh, my God. So I didn't go to school for the next three days. I took the money. I went and bought, if nobody beats the whiz, I went and bought, like, a... Uh, a rack of CDs, right? And I burnt them. And I brought them like three days later. So, yo, I, I needed these CDs three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry. Da, 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 da. He gave me uh, $250. And then I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is going on. And that's how my career started. It just I started running around New York at 16, 17. And it just started building from there. How many mixtapes did it take before artists are knocking down your door to get on... Well, you know, it, they started coming early because I had a niche. My niche hasn't really changed since I've been 16. My niche was uh, instrumentals mm-hmm. and new artists. Mm-hmm. And they kind of go one in, into another because I, when I started doing the instrumentals, the only person who was doing it was a guy named Hot Day at the time. Mm-hmm. Hot Day and the Dream Team. So, But his instrumentals were all loops. So I was going finding like the real instrumental off the vinyl, or finding the producers, and the producers were just happy somebody was talking. About them. I was like, <laughs> like, like, yo, can I have your instrumental? I'm like, sure. And then 
And at the time, 50 Cent was getting hot doing instrumentals. So the instrumental business was picking up. Every rapper in the city would have a Sycamore instrumental CD. And I was like, it was a growing market. So all the, you know, people like Fabulous and The Locks and stuff, they would call me like, yo, can you bring some instrumentals by the studio? That's dope. And that's how like, I started getting into studio sessions. I remember when I was like 17, I'm in Fabulous called me to go to the studio with him and I was like the greatest day of my life yeah. <laughs> you know so I went and brought him instrumentals and one day he was like yo you got any like real beats and I was like real beats <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's how I started like getting into producers because I was like yo I could give CDs uh, albums or whatever and all the new artists would start rocking with me and I was like the beginning of my career and that that really hasn't changed much and um, so from there I started getting a name for myself in the city I was selling these CDs and at that point I was selling about when I would drop an instrumental CD, I would sell about 2,000 CDs. Damn. And then uh, when I dropped like, a real CD, I would sell about 3,000. And then I had a deal with a distributor in Harlem named Action Pack, who was like a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, I'll sell all your CDs out of town, and I'll, you can just sell all the CDs you want in New York. So, you know, and the CDs are going for like two two fifty. So anytime I drop a mixtape, I have like $4,000, $6,000. So I was just wilding. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was just, and, and, and I was going against like the clues and these guys who were moving around. Did you ever buy a cell phone at, the, at this time? Or was it just oh, still yeah, like, yeah. they're all calling the house phone <laughs> just like. You know, you know, I had like a little operation, you know. So the first thing I did was I, I started, I got a, a, a booth in a, in a record store when I was 17 in Brooklyn, right? I went to this barbershop on uh, Franklin Avenue mm-hmm. and I told him like yo I want to sell CDs in here like other people's CDs and he's like yo get out of the store kid get out of here <laughs> so I came back again like yo you know I want how much would it cost for me to have a booth in here and he said $600 a month right yep. just like he thought I was just gonna go away <laughs> so I came back the third time with $1,800 and I was like look so when can I move in <laughs> I didn't know that his rent was $600 so it started with him just like giving me a booth and cutting hair and by like month three he just stopped coming in completely so I just started giving more and more space you know what I mean and I was like that was the beginning of my operation then I needed an employee so I called my friend Roberto Garris dead um, he passed away a few years ago he um, came to the store and he became my first employee and so I got to start moving around because like I can't stay in a store all day I gotta sell my CDs you know what I mean I had a second driver because you know and I was paying everybody like Three hundred or five hundred dollars a week. I had like a little operation going. It felt real cool because it was all kind of like at the city of parents. You're seventeen years old. I was still in high school. I was in my senior year. But you know, when you're in high school in New York, depending on how many credits you got, so I only had one class in the morning. So I'll go by nine thirty. I'd be out. <laughs> so the whole time I'm like bubbling the city. Then the girls are coming to me like, "Yo, I saw your CDs by the train." <laughs> had it on the mat. So by the by the time we graduated that June, like I was like starting to get big. And the teachers uh, were like, "Well, you know, when you blow up, here's my card." You know, it started getting crazy. At that point, I was like, "Well, college is out." And uh, and that that's how my career really started to go. You know. Well, how'd you explain? All the money that was coming into your parents at this point. Well, at first, my father thought I was selling drugs. He didn't understand it. He mm-hmm. was like, "I'm like, because I was trying to explain to him the concept, like mm-hmm. doing music." But he, all he saw was money, and he saw that I had the um, I had uh, all he saw was money, and he saw that I had um, I was coming home late. Yeah, yeah. and you were listening to cannabis, and he was like, "Yo, <laughs> this dude, definitely a lot of weed." But I'll tell you the day it all stopped. The the day that I came, they came to the store opening. It was February 2002. And both of my parents came together, and they saw, like, I had a store, I had a sign, yeah. I had a booth, it was a real thing. I had an investor, I had all kind of stuff. They Up to this day, they never bothered me again about nothing. Crazy. Yeah, they were just like, whatever that kid wants to do, yeah. <laughs> let him do it. You know what I mean? So that, that, was the, that was the day that they really saw it. And 
Okay, so artists are fucking with you. Artists are messing with me. I'm running around. I'm just at this point. Every day is just like an adventure. The, the route was, you go to all the key spots. So it was like downtown Brooklyn was key. Then I had little spots in Brooklyn barbershops and little Canarsie and little spots. And you got to go to Canal Street. That's where like the bulk of the money was. Then you saw 14th Street. Then you saw 125th Street, 116th Street, Fordham Road in the Bronx, Jamaica Avenue. How do you make sure that someone's not? Copying your CDs that, and selling them. Well, you got you got to really enforce it. The second guy I hired, he would go around and check, collect money, because you would kind of deliver early in the week, so you get the big sales on Thursdays and Fridays. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You do your pickups like Saturdays, Sundays. You know what I mean? It was like it was like selling drugs. Almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like this 100 percent is selling drugs. <laughs> and so you know, and then you'd have the bootleggers. You was take them away. Yeah. But if you had, you know, but some people used to cut deals with the bootleggers. Like if a bootlegger would buy like 500 CDs or a thousand CDs. You know what I mean? Sometimes you would just like get some quick cash. It was cool because it was before the internet. So you, you saw instant feedback. So mm-hmm. I used to live for that feedback. I used to live for dropping a tape. And the money wasn't really important to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care about shit like sneakers and stuff. You mm-hmm. know, so it was like more like if the CD sold, I mean, I was doing good and I was getting bigger. And then people started booking me like for shows up and down the East Coast. And the thing that really showed me that I was making it somewhere is that I got a call from Snoop Dogg because he had a Brooklyn guy in his camp. And every time the guy from Brooklyn would check home, he'd be like, yo, this guy Sycamore is starting to blow up. So Snoop calls me to his house, and he flies me from L.A. to Diamond Bar. That's the first time I ever made it that far on a plane. And um, went to his house, and everybody's smoking and stuff like that. I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> and um, so finally, he's playing video games with, like, think Nate Dogg, got arrested there or something yeah. like that. And he comes to me, and he's like, yo, cuz... I do mixtapes like 50 Cent <laughs> I said basically like doing a mixtapes like doing an album you just don't have to do the singles and you don't have to do the clearances he's like oh I get it and after that it was on fire so we ended up staying in his house for like three weeks he started making like 30 records and did a mixtape called Welcome to the Church yeah. that was like my first A&R process because I was finding the beats like you got more beats cuz and, like, <laughs> and everybody was just smoking like, one thing I noticed about the house I don't remember much about it mm. just remember they never never did not have weed <laughs> and no one passed everyone had their own blunt so it was the most amount of weed I've ever seen in my life and I, I was like the craziest experience and that's when I was like oh this is cool yeah. you know what I mean and then from there I started like you know at that time I was really starting to pop like, you, ever, you ever heard of Justo's mixtape awards? Yeah, of yeah. course. He got, everybody you're talking about is dead, but God rest in Justo, you know, yeah, he yeah. passed away too. And he used to do the award show. And I had won two awards that year. of Best personality and I was part of best team. This is like 2003, right? It's 2003. And at the end of 2003, did, I think, was it the end of this year? What year did college dropout drop? Uh, 2004. Okay, so it was about to drop. So February 2004, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was like November the 7th. So Jay-Z had just retired off the Black Album. Yep. And I had built a relationship with Just Blaze on the Rock the Mic tour. And um, I used to just harass him. I used to be like, yo, man, what you going to do? Jay-Z's retiring. Kanye's kicking your ass. Because Kanye and him were like, he was, he was yeah. above Kanye for a long yeah, time. Yeah. Then Kanye was rapping. He was passing by. I'm like, yo, yeah. you need an artist. Like, you got you to find yourself an artist. You have a label. And then it's like, and it's like, so what do you think I should do? I'm like, find an artist. I'll find you an artist. And he was like, well, and that's like, what do you want for it? I was like, oh, I want to be an A&R for your label. He's like, what are you going to call a label? Like, I don't know yet. But he's like, well, you can, and he's like, you can't have any money until um, until we get distribution. So I was like, cool. <laughs> so, like, you know, I called uh, Saigon, uh, and I was like, yo, you know, you want to work with Just Blaze? <laughs> and he was, like, moving out of his apartment in Jersey. Like, yo, I need you to get here right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he comes to the studio. They vibe out. 
he loves them and then boom they started working so that was like my first studio experience like I'm like cool I'm an A&R I started doing press you know what I mean yeah because <laughs> he didn't really care about the label I was just running around doing it this time I'm like 19 and I was just like I was like double XL's picking me up yeah you are doing like Village Voice yeah, like was, all yeah, that I was losing my mind at that yeah. time. <laughs> and every, everything's still fresh you know because I'm just I'm like a year out of high school or pretend high school you know going to one class a day <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then, then, then finally finally like it was like he gets a the record deal you know and I was like finally we did it but then they left me out like the dinner the celebration dinner really and I was like wait a minute like when they, all the money came it's like well technically I got an executive producer deal I didn't get a distribution deal and I was like a, I was like a cold winner you know what I mean so um, they they set up over at Atlantic yeah so you weren't a part of that process no no they they, they tried to like not give me no money off of it because they got a bunch of advances it was like a lot of money it was, like, it was probably like $600,000 to save hands so I'm still a little mad at Just up to this yeah, day, yeah, but, yeah. you know what I mean? But it was the best thing that could happen to me in the sense that it brought me my entrepreneurial spirit. So what I did was I started like another company. I started working with True Life. And all. He got a deal five months later with with, with Jay-Z. Yep. And then at, at that point, my phone can't stop ringing. Every rapper you could think of in the world from New York is calling me up, trying to get a deal. So like, now I'm coming to kids to get people record deals. Yeah. So did did you get him the record deal with, was it Rock La Familia? Mm-hmm. And we did a mixtape called The New New York. That's what we shopped the deal with, with that mixtape, me and him on the cover. So that was like, that was real cool. But yeah. obviously he was like, yo, you should manage me. And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't do management. <laughs> I, I, it was too, too much for me at the time. But the one good thing that come out of the Saigon business situation, Saigon signed to Hip Hop and G. So Hip Hop, so like, he took me under his wing at that point. He was just like, yo, man, like, started coming around. We just started building. And yeah. that, and that, you know, he became my mentor. And that, that was like the relationship that, you know, really solidified me because he was showing me like the role. Like he was explaining to me like what an A&R does because he, you know, he had signed Kanye right. and then he was managing Lil Wayne. So anytime that he, he had for me, I was just looking at him like, this is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't believe like he would even make time for me. So I was just like, I you know up to this day, you know, he's, I talk to Hop like every day, you know, and his, and his knowledge in music is just sick. So then he, he calls me one day and say, hey, you, know, you need a job? And I was like, no, nah, not really. <laughs> and he's like, you want a job? I was like, well, what you got? And he's like, he said, you know, this, this position at Atlantic Records opened up. You know, you should meet Craig Callman. I think he'll like you. He's a chairman. I was like, all right, cool. And so one day he set up a meeting. No, actually, he didn't set up a meeting. One day we're in Fat Beats, and Craig Callman's in Fat Beats. And he's like, hip-hop, this is where I got to find you? you know? <laughs> so it's a Saturday. So we go up to his office, all three of us. And he can't. He doesn't have the key to his own office. You know, his assistant opens his office for him. So we just sat down in the middle of the hallway. And I basically just told him the whole story I just told y'all. And he just made me. He said, well, how do you like to be A&R here? And I had two negotiating points I cared about, right? I was like, first... I need an office. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. like, okay, cool. You know? <laughs> now the second point was, I need a cool title, right? And he said, how does director A&R sound? I'm like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, where do I sign? What did you put in your office? Baseball bat. I think the award, the Justo Award. Mm-hmm. Um... That's about it. You know what I mean? Too we visited uh, Jim Jones when he was at uh, Warner. Well, I want to talk about that, too. Was that the same mm-hmm. era? Mm-hmm. And and his position was his. He he was. I think he was director of one of music group. Right. So his, I mean, his, his, <laughs> he was Jim Jones sitting in an office. Like that's that's what he was. He was in. A, he had a way. He had a way cooler position. You know. But like like what did he do besides like bring Bird Gang over and sort of? Well, I'm not sure because I I didn't bother really, his assistants. I, I didn't really do much either when okay. I was over there. You know what I mean? Like I worked on um, 
with Silence Girl went to Gordon. But then, you know, that was like an R&B artist. I didn't really know what I was doing. Then um, I, I, they had me working on like some local St. Louis acts. Then mm-hmm. I had to do the Saigon project. But then that was getting crazy and, and, and really bureaucratic. And that kind of, it kind of turned me off to the whole A&R process. Mm-hmm. I was just like, you know, maybe I feel like, I, feel like I, was, I had more more upward momentum in the street. And I had stopped doing all the stuff in the street. Right. Like mixtapes and stuff just to do this job. You know, so it was like... I felt like I was kind of like going backwards. But I told myself, which was a mistake in retrospect, I told myself, well, I'm going to stop doing everything and really focus on becoming an executive because right. I thought it was a way out and I saw mixtapes going down. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, so, but it, w- it was slow. Like, you know, you're 21 years old in a corporation. There's certain things you need to know about one life and you need to know <laughs> about just like, you know, the bureaucracy that you, you wouldn't really understand. So it, it, I started hitting like a rough patch up there. But they liked me a lot, but I just can't, like, crack the code. Well, so the, the way it works, and correct me if I'm wrong, is they'll have a meeting with all the A&Rs, and you sort of split up the... The, the projects. The projects, right? Yeah. yeah. So Winter Gordon was given to you, or did you choose no, her? No, I, I chose her. Like, okay. I found her demo, and like, it was an incredible demo, and it was, like, 17 songs. I thought she was special. She made songs about, like, the world and love and unification. And, like, I was like, oh, this is sick. But when I got up there, it was just, like, some basic stuff that I didn't understand. So I, I lost control of the project. They started giving it to, like, a new A&R came in. I just, I didn't like any of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I, so I, it kind of made me kind of bitter to the system. So what I started doing, I, I started plotting on starting an artist development company mm-hmm. called The Famous Firm. That's what I started focusing on. I read a book called A 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. And that just ruined my whole life. I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm quitting my job right now. <laughs> and I did. You know, I left it and I launched this business, you know. And, I, you know, I had like, I took like a bunch of the interns with me in the office. Mm-hmm. And I just, um, and you know, Joey Ie, who's yeah. a yep. good friend of mine, yep. he allowed me to work out of asylum offices. So I was still go to the same building. But just yeah. 23rd floor. <laughs> yeah, just two floors down. You know what I mean? And, uh, and um, that was great because it was a bunch of, because I was 23 at the time. And the average age of the people at the company is like 21. So it was like, it started at 8 and got to 15 reps. And we would just run around and do artist development. And we would just be like maniacs. You yeah. know what I'm saying? We all had the same MySpace banners. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and it, it, it was it was a fun time. But, you know, as a, and one thing I learned is the difference between, you know, being like, being an, being an entrepreneur has some skills that you need to learn. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's certain back office stuff, day-to-day stuff. And I was really focused on the vision. You know, so... That was going real good, and, that, and that's when I got uh, started working with Nicki Minaj, and it was with her really, really early. I yeah. saw her on the, um, the tapes, on on the the come up DVD, and she was just like, I was like, oh, she could be the next Foxy Brown. She's crazy, you know. So <laughs> I started like reaching out to her, I made, built a relationship. I knew her manager at the time, Fendi, through yeah. the mixtapes, mm-hmm. and I started managing her. And um, you know, I learned a lot working with Nicki. Well, our connection was we're both Trinidadian. Gotcha. We we're both born in Trinidad. You know, so that was like one of our strong connections. It it was real. It was real sick working with her. You know what I mean? Because I I got to see somebody who was like, she's a real genius. You know, she she woke up every morning like really early, like seven eight o'clock in the morning. She didn't smoke. She didn't drink. She was very focused, but it was hard to deal with her. And I think at the time, my ego wouldn't let me deal with somebody like her. You know what I mean? But in retrospect, I watched what she was doing. She was just really being a great businesswoman. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's when. It all kind of all got overwhelming for me, and I kind of had like a burnout like the end of that year, and I moved to L.A. Well, okay, yeah, so before we get to L.A., can you tell us any good stories about getting drops for your mixtapes? Like, would you chase anyone down to get them to, to give you a good drop? That's a crazy story about drops for the mixtape. Because we got some favorite drops of yours. Yeah. 
you know, everybody goes through, um, like, in, like, 2004, whatever, 2003, you know, you're getting drops from people like Pharrell or people like, you know, Snoop. Not you specifically, but just, like, people in the mixtape game. But, like, our um, favorite uh, ones would probably be Jacob the Jeweler. I was going to say <laughs> Jacob the Jeweler. Listen, you're in privileged position to learn a thing or two, keep your mouth shut, and your eyes open, drop it, Sycamore. <laughs> this is Jacob the Jeweler. I'm chilling here with Sycamore. Who comes to my store? Some of the people come to my store. It's Puff Daddy, Jay-Z, Sycamore. Uh, Mary J. Blush, Mariah Carey, Busta Rhymes, Jais. Yes, sir. Pharrell Williams. Yeah, yeah, you're not a made guy unless you come here, you know. I was always a little bit of a troll. You know okay. what I'm saying? So even back then, it was kind of like, what's kind of like something odd? Because, you know, everybody else, you can, I can't win trying to get the big guys. You know what I mean? If Jay-Z's hosting a mixtape with Beanie Siegel or Jadakiss, like, yeah. that's selling out. So I need to stand out in the marketplace. That one's definitely my favorite one because he had no <laughs> idea who I was. <laughs> and and uh, he, he had known me through uh, this guy named Jice, and who was like this kid from Connecticut who really... He actually, he's actually big now. He's named... Uh, the boy wonder or the boy genius, the kid genius. You know, it's a famous blogger who gets all the phones early. Oh yeah. Oh, that's him. Yeah, it's Jice. Oh, crazy. He just got shouted out by Jacob the jeweler. That's like he's like the <laughs> sixth name. And I, I was saying to Eric before when I was playing it, I was like, "Who's this Jice?" He says it like so, so like emphatically. I was just like, I have no idea who this is. But and that's also like the guy. He's he's huge on Twitter. He's huge on Twitter. He's 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 like friends a, with Just Blaze. Just Blaze, yeah. He yeah. should bring you guys to get together. I, no, I, no, I brought them together. I introduced him to Just Blaze because there was this phone that Just Blaze really wanted, and I said, I know the kid who has that phone. Yo. I brought them together. And they're still friends up to this. <laughs> yeah, day. yeah, yeah. We have a good story about getting a drop, which was we were doing sketches early, and so 2007 ish, and we went to Atlantic Records one day. And we were down in the lobby at 1290, the old building, and K-Slay was standing there, right? And we had our camera with us, like a Canon XL2, and we're like, oh, should we say something? Should we not say something? We should probably get him. I mean, it's K-Slay, right? He's pretty standoffish, though. So we go up to him, and we're like, yo, I'm Eric, I'm Jeff. We're, and that time, at that time, we were the real. And we're like, we do hip-hop sketch comedy, and, and we'd love to get a drop. And he was like nah not now I'm eating a hot dog and we're just like we're like he's like I don't want this shit on my face like whatever like it would be a bad look we're like we're thinking like you know we can wait like it's fine but he was like no forget it like you know good luck and move on or whatever so I swear to God, like a day or two later, you see this video show up online because it was the it was the Uncle Murder versus Papoose um, beef. Papoose beef, remember? That was a real beef. That was a, yeah, and and obviously Pap was was K-Slay's guy, and K-Slay puts out a video where he's sitting on a toilet eating cereal. Shouting at Uncle Murder how he's this and that or whatever, and he puts that up online, but yeah. he can't be seen like with like you know crumbs on his mouth. Yeah, yeah. On our like little drop, that was a disgusting video. It was. <laughs> doesn't exist online anymore. But, but you've never seen K Slay with a hot dog in his mouth, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's something different about that one. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's not. This is very hip hop to shit on people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not hip hop to eat a hot dog. <laughs> Were you involved at all in the True Life Jim Jones issues? Um, I mean, kind of remotely because I was putting together the True Life tapes. So it was just like that point, it was like a war. You know what I mean? But I wasn't like active in a beef. You, know you weren't saying? hacking anybody's MySpace pages, nah, photoshopping Jim Jones onto Borat's body or anything. <laughs> <laughs> 
I ain't do none of that. So specific to those years. <laughs> yeah, I know. I haven't thought about that since like, it came out. That was kind of awesome, though. But no, it, it, no. That, my main thing was like always the music. You know what I'm saying? Just getting them out because when I worked with True, it's coming from like a real cool place. You know what I mean? It came from a place like we're both friends with Saigon. I really wanted to see him succeed, and you know, at the time, we both really needed each other. He needed somebody to help champion believe in his music, and I needed somebody to champion. You know what I mean? So I was just, you know, when, when I work with artists, man, I, I rock with them. I don't, I don't know how to go half-ass. Like when I, when I work with like YG, you know what I mean? Like we went and lived in the same. Uh, apartment complex for months you know what I mean when yeah. I work with Travis who lives in the same house I don't know how to not be all the way in it with artists I need to be in it with you you know what I mean we heard you slept on Travis's floor like during that process it was really like well almost <laughs> we, we got a, a rented a house studio um, we rented a house studio and um, two house studios so I had a room in the house studio that we rented and the second one, uh, I didn't have a room because I lived really close. Mm-hmm. But I would end up just crashing on the couch every single like night. When you decided to move to L.A. and continue the famous firm out there, what was... It went bad when I moved to L.A. because L.A. is not like New York. You know, and, you know, you guys are New York, New Yorkers. You yeah, know, yeah. Like, I'm a New Yorker. So when you go to when you go to L.A., you think like every New Yorker thinks. Like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to out-hustle everybody. Yeah. I'm going to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to do 10 meetings a day. These motherfuckers don't know what's going on. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But when you go out there, you realize it's another life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you can't treat L.A. like L.A. It's another culture. No one wants to meet you at 3 o'clock because of traffic. You <laughs> yeah. know what I'm saying? Everybody's, like, going to be late to every meeting. Yeah. But that's cool because the meeting's going to last two and a half hours. In in New York, it's very, like, I wake up at this time and have this breakfast meeting. I go to this meeting. I do my drinking. I have five meetings in a day. They're all 45 minutes each. And I get to the next thing. I don't have a drink. It's, like, very thing. But the one thing I started to appreciate about L.A., that I didn't appreciate at that time was that the women exactly. <laughs> but you know, I think I think I think New York got better stylish and realer women yeah, yeah. than L.A. L.A. woman is very like flaky. New York woman, they're gonna rock with you. They might curse you out. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. They're gonna they're gonna be there for you. L.A. woman, you know, you guys can get in a one fight and it'll disappear for like two months. You know what I mean? It's very it's everything's that's because traffic's terrible. So you can't yeah. Yeah, it's very hard to get from the west side to the east side. That's right. Was that an issue for your parents, by the way, that you were like, all right, I'm going to move to the other coast? My parents at that point was rocking whatever I said. You okay, know what yeah. I, mean? I, I could have told them going to like uh, Istanbul. They were like, all right, cool, we, we trust you. you and what about me? all the people who were working with you? That's where it went bad because I started losing the connection because we used to do like a, a call every day. Yeah. But like now, as me being on the west coast, you start losing the grip on, on your company. Did anybody move with you? No. Wow. But I had a reps in L.A., Okay. So I, t- I got strong. You know who was one of the reps? Um, you know Josh Pease from Pease. Yeah, yes, yeah, sure. He was our West Coast rep, and he is uh, he was like 16 years old at the time, or 17 years old. Crazy. He was, he was our youngest rep. Yeah. Crazy. Mm. Um, Jeff was just searching through some old. Uh, yeah, because I, I was trying to figure out where in Brooklyn you were living, and uh, I just searched like Sycamore, Brooklyn, and our video about the Brooklyn uh, tourism board, yeah. where we said like. It was uh, Jay-Z's Brooklyn video. Yeah, Brooklyn would go hard. And it was all like hipsters in 2008. Yeah. One of the first commenters, Josh in Peace. Yeah. <laughs> Josh, Josh is a hell of a This is Black Hoodie Rap. This is Black Hoodie Rap. It's American apparel, no biggie. Brooklyn allows me to live my life and play bass in my noise band, 808s and roller skates. I love that like, Brooklyn is named after David Beckham's son. I had no idea Jay-Z was from Brooklyn. I had to admit this. I'm actually a huge fan of Rihanna. Well, I'm currently subletting from um, my sister who owns like an organic water store. I don't know about Brooklyn, but I always go hard every time a Salvation Army has a sale. I don't really listen to rap unless it's like ironic, like when I'm listening to Public Enemy. We are okay, L-Y-M-A. 
in the third comment Ricky Hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's when we just changed his name to Rich Hill. Sorry, oh, he was. Yeah. I don't know. We had, we had changed his name like around I think 2011. But I, yeah, what was I, that life like? Rich, it was one of the best things could happen to me because you got to really see like another life that you know, being from Brooklyn, coming from Trinidad, you know, yeah, it's a certain system. And, and, and you, when when you see somebody from another life with like, a different kind of aspirations, because you know, when you come from. The hood, your whole thing is like I'm gonna just make a lot of money, mm-hmm. and that's gonna solve all my problems. But then when you meet somebody in a family that has that much money, yep, you see that there's a whole another wave of problems and issues. This doesn't make it all good. You know what I mean? So and I, for anybody who doesn't know, Ricky Hill is Tommy Hilfiger's son, son right? Yeah. But Rich at the time was just like I had True at the time was like somebody to believe in. You know what I mean? And you know, so everybody's like, "Oh, you're working with Tommy Hilfiger's son? Get out of here!" But he really really worked really hard and he started building his own style mm-hmm. you know and a lot of it was always frustrating because we would get so far everybody would be like yeah the music's good but he's Tommy Hilfiger's son mm-hmm. you know what I mean mm-hmm. I always told people like if I put the same amount of work into Rich mm-hmm. that I put into anybody else they'd be Rihanna but it always has like a glass ceiling so even in like the SYLDD project that was like the first album I really got a chance to like work on and I really got good at working in the studio working with Rich Mm -hmm. because he would be in the studio every night when I first used to come to the studio I used to just go fall asleep (laughs) then after a while I would get good at being at the studio because being at the studio and managing the studio session is the art and me working with Rich was was the, the way I got great at working in studios you know what I mean did it matter that because he wasn't signed at the time nope so did it matter that there wasn't any deadline, so to speak? Yeah, well, it's kind of like, you know, it's like it be, being in a dojo a little bit. It's like being in a gym, <laughs> you know? And then when we got our record deal with Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. that was like a big, like, snap. Like, I told you guys, you know what I mean? This is going to work. And, then, you know, at the time, we had set up a deal, like, to go with The weekend. He was going to executive produce the project. We had yeah. a whole thing yeah. set up. Because they're buddies. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're tight. Mm-hmm. So, um, and on, uh, because Joey Aie, he looked them up. Because when, when, when he was courting the weekend, he was like, who's who in the artist you want to work with? He was like, oh, Rich Hill. And Joey was like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he flew Rich out there. So it was cool. You know, I think that... I think doing that album with him and and, and, and getting that record deal, it kind of like... Again, let's go back to that theme of like overcoming. But at the time, he was the only artist I was working with. Mm-hmm. You know, True had... Uh, you know, he got, got incarcerated. Yeah, yeah. You know, Saigon was... Um, doing this thing over there and I didn't have any and Nikki was like blowing up every single night you know <laughs> so it was cool but I, that that's what the second time I went to LA so let me go back to that story for LA so LA yeah. I hated LA mm-hmm. right nobody wanted to meet me at 6 o'clock in the morning right. you know what I mean I was, <laughs> I was driving to Malibu every day just looking on the beach I was like I'm moving back to New York I moved back to New York and I was just trying to figure it all out and I was moving around every day. I was like, oh, this this kind of, like, sucks. Like, I was just in the zone. But I look back, and, like, now I look back at it. Like, that was, like, the best possible time for me because all I would do is, like, read and study and work. And I wrote on a piece of paper, like, like I can't live my life like this. So I was like, I'm going to come up with a plan, and I'm going to stick with this plan of what I'm going to do. So I said, I'm going to write out my Wikipedia uh, of my life. Just like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, this is my five-year plan. Because when I was young, I was obsessed with more things that I, now I realize don't really matter. I was obsessed by doing things by a certain age, the 80s baby stuff. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. like, it's a lot of like agreements and situations I put on myself. I started breaking all that, and I was like, look, I'm just going to be like the best A&R in the world. I know A&R is not cool right now, but let me just, that's what I know how to do, and that's where I'm needed, so I'm going to do that. So I was like, how am I going to get back into it? So I started doing these shows called The Famous Factory. And The Famous Factory was cool because that kind of got me into like all the new managers and like I started having Currency and Dom Kennedy and Nipsey Hussle and all these young 
people and I was talking and I was back in the scene a little bit. I was like, okay, cool. And Rich got his record deal out there in LA. So I was like, okay, this is clicking too. Then I moved to LA and I uh, started getting the YG's music. And then I started working with um, Warner Brothers. Now, Joey was at Warner Brothers. And, um, you know, Joey gave me a real opportunity because I was like, yo, I need a real opportunity. And he was like, I was like, I don't need money. Just give me an op. So he just allowed me to come to the office every day just like a silent. I would just show up every day and try to catch a play. And on one day, uh, Travis Scott walked in the office. Uh, no, an intern gave me his demo. My boy Jack gave me his demo. I like, this demo is sick. Um, going to, can you bring him in? So he hooked up to me and he brought Travis off. And Travis had like zero hair. Yeah. yeah. He's bouncing around. <laughs> he had the same kind of energy he has right now, you know? Yeah. He had these really cool videos. And I just thought it was like the most amazing thing in the world. So then, um, and then that's when I, and then Warner Brothers got really excited about it. But he had flew to Atlanta like the next day to go work with Jason Cheetah. When he came back, we were still rocking and rolling. I mean, we had one night, we were hanging out. He'd be in my house every day. And we were like, you want to go to Meek Mill's session? He's like, yeah. So I called my boy Dallas. I was like, can I bring mm-hmm. Travis? So you know how much excited about him. So he came to Meek Mill's session. He did a song. He said, yo, i never seen Meek do a song with somebody he just met. Hmm. You know? One time we was just like, yo, let's go to Coachella. We didn't have tickets, so we just tried to crash like a nylon party. Mm-hmm. And, we ended up <laughs> <laughs> and it was cool rocking with Travis because it was like any kind of crazy adventures, he would be 100% down for. Yeah. It's still like that up to this day. So I, I actually, he ended up, ended up doing a deal at Epic, which came full circle later. And then, um, but from there, he, he was like a big buzz popping up. So then um, Def Jam liked what was going on. Joey became president, and they brought me over there. So so when you were over at Warner, um, and you're with, you know, it's Todd, Joey, and you're with the A&Rs, are you, like, bringing in acts? That you- yeah, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just there every day. I'm just, like, turned up every day. I'm, like, I'm bringing an artist. I'm trying to find stuff. They had me working with Kirko Bangs. And Kirko Bangs was cool, but, like... He didn't really after he got the hit record. He didn't really feel like working on an album no right. more. He, just, he more like felt like complaining on Twitter. Yeah, he <laughs> yeah. was like, I'm like, I'm like, yo, it's working your album. He's like, yo, it's on my album. Why I gotta make an album? It's chill, sick. We don't have an album right now. He yeah. was doing his shows, you know, the platinum record. So, um, so when Joey went to Def Jam, that was like a godsend. Was there anybody who like you tried to bring in to Warner that like you couldn't close the deal on? Just um, at the time, just Travis. You know, and we went hard at the weekend, but mm-hmm. I couldn't travel at the time, so I couldn't go to Toronto. Mm. You know what I mean? So, but Travis was the one I really wanted to sign. That's the one I was like going balls to the wall with. You know. And so, going over to Def Jam now, you're officially an A and R. Officially, like you got to title yeah. everything. And you know? do you get to pick the artists you work with once you go over there? Well, no. At that point, I just needed opportunities. So right. they was like, "Listen, we got some artists on the label that we don't really know what to do with." And it was uh, Little Reese, Little Dirk, and YG. By the way, none of them was anywhere close to where they are now. Well, in, in any, respect. I would say Lil Reese is probably okay, yeah, the same yeah, yeah. same place. <laughs> Lil Reese, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, you know, I, I love Dirk and YG to death. Yeah. But when I first got in there, when he gave me those names, I was most excited to work with Lil Reese. Why? Yo, I heard that he was the most like, yeah. So you can you can talk about why you're excited. Why? No, yeah, no, you're right. Like he was like he was like the he was like in the streets crazy. He had yeah. the music. He was like a young DMX to me. And that song was like the biggest song in the world, at least in our, in our world, mm-hmm. like, at the top. And I just thought it was so cool. It was like, oh, Lil Reese is calling me. Like, <laughs> I thought it was dope. Working on him, I was like, I had a whole plan for him and to, to work. But we never really got a chance to work 100% because mm-hmm. the video dropped. Of right, him. With him and the girl. Yeah, yeah beating up a girl. Yeah. And that kind of froze his career. I think the first person to put out a song called Savages, which now everybody says. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Now he's, he's he was early savage. on the Savage scene. I think he, he think he broke the Savage scene. He think yeah. he broke the um the Goofy, too. Mm-hmm. Like, people calling people Goofies. He, yeah. he, he was ahead of his time with a lot of this slang. 
So like I was gonna work with Reese and Dirk, but then Reese stuff got slowed up, and I, I still was, it had the same manager at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, King, what's, what's uh, what's that song? You know, uh, at the top remix, they shot him out in a song. Well, the manager was the same, the same manager. So I came up to around this time, 2012. Mm-hmm. I flew up to Chicago to meet with Dirk, mm-hmm. and I'm in a studio in Chicago, and it's just like where, exactly how you think a studio in Chicago would be. <laughs> Super friendly, everybody's <laughs> smiling. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like everybody has winter jackets on, yeah. a lot of guns in the studio, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of dreads. Mm-hmm. Everybody's smoking, and I'm just like with my notebook, like let's get to work. Play were they mind. like really like receptive to you being the responsible one, or were they just like who is this dude and why is he here? No, no, no. It's always no matter whether it was like true life and, and you deal with like you know a bunch of like wild Puerto Ricans or mm-hmm. you deal with YG and it's a bunch of like a bumped in blood yeah, yeah, yeah. Dirk it's always the same thing people have a misconception like people like that they want to like do that stuff you know they, they have an opportunity to like really make it and be a success and you have somebody who's coming out their way to work with you they're yeah. gonna just give you the red carpet well i, I mean it doesn't like, work every time though because like kirko bangs obviously wasn't really interested in doing work though it doesn't work every time it depends you're 100 right it definitely doesn't work if the artist doesn't want to be successful right luckily like you know all the people i'm talking about yeah from rich to travis to yg to Dirk to um whoever else we talked about uh do you, you kind of like in life you kind of weed out the 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 the, the people who aren't worth it and like in the universe kind of brings you together with the yeah. people who are on the same wavelength as you we always uh, you know came around the same path we went around the same circles and we always had a same kind of steady incline and we always you know apart from being friends we always like respected each other's work mm-hmm. and you get that you know luckily i think that if you do things right and you, and you stick to the process and you, and you pay attention you you get going with great people yeah i think that i think that there's a huge um, misconception from from new artists who believe that like a label is just out to like mess them up you know like like I feel like a lot of guys don't understand that if a building is on your side they just mean well and and everyone's trying to move in the same direction well I agree more with the artists it's okay like, you know they say the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions you sure know? and sure. it's like the artist in 2015 if I'm building my career up and I'm doing my art, I'm getting my shows on, my SoundCloud's clicking, I'm starting to move on the road, things are happening. Like I'm, I'm pretty much managed my career up to this point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because the people aren't just going like, oh, I heard your demo, I love you. It doesn't happen that much anymore. Mm-hmm. So I, it's I heard your hundred thousand followers, I love you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know you gotta you gotta you gotta protect that. So mm-hmm. when you get to the label, they see some of the people that they. Liked and then disappeared after they signed to a label, so they get paranoid. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of times the labels, there's no transition plan from when I signed the artist mm-hmm. and it was hot. The labels, a lot of times, they just sign it and be like, okay, cool, keep doing what you're doing. But it's supposed to be like a transition plan when you get in there. Like now that you get signed, these are the next steps to keep this going. And there's always like a lull. And it's a little mix of the big advance coming in. The artists feel like I got a deal, I made it. There's not enough of urgency in that process. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of artists slow down for the six months right after they get the deal. There's a term for it called signed and retired. <laughs> <laughs> it happens in sports too a lot. Yeah. People get big contracts and just never perform when they had a contract yet. Right. 
So I, I, I see him. So because it, it, it really doesn't matter which label you sign to. I feel like it's your team, mm-hmm. who your manager is, who you have in the building. You know what I mean? And certain buildings, not just A and R's. I know certain buildings, a publicist might be the, their star player. Certain mm-hmm. buildings, it might be a marketer. Certain buildings, it might be a president. And sometimes, sometimes, certain buildings, it's, a, it's an intern or an admin. Mm-hmm. Certain like, buildings, it's nobody. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like Kanye, he was lucky to have a uh, plain Pat. Yeah. yeah. At Def Jam, because yeah. I remember going to Plain Pat's office all the time. Plain Pat wasn't even an A and R. No, he's doing money right he's in our administration yeah. so he like he's the one who books the studio and stuff like that but he was with him and uh ferris bueller championed um kanye at the yeah. time and he was, was every time he used to come as a mixtape dj like yo when you play my <laughs> kanye records and i would cause, like oh this is cool yeah. you know but he wasn't like top priority when you get the rockefeller demo he was like the last one behind like mop and the young gun yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know by the way i just saw ferris bueller posted um uh, his passport or something mm-hmm. and it actually says Ferris Bueller on it. I was like I guess he changed his name or his parents <laughs> were very early on that train I don't know I'm kind of speechless with that. Yeah. <laughs> so you got you got Reese you got Dirk and you got YG yep so you know and I'm working with all of them at the same time and Dirk was the first one to really like, YG's put out a mixtape called Just Read Up too mm-hmm. and he had a song called You Broken In and I was just I like I really like working YG because I like this hustle I like the way he thought it was like oh this is cool you know what I mean and you know being from New York we always kind of like looked at LA people like this is dope yeah and then Dirk was the first record that I got out because he got out the um, this ain't what you want and then when I was in that little session with all the, all the Chicago kids it was like oh this is the record so we went down to Miami finished the song and five other songs at the time put that song out and it really hit big and then the You Broke song was popping in LA that was cool and then um Reese was still kind of on freeze mm-hmm. and then um I mean he's still on freeze like <laughs> there, there's there's no point after him beating up a woman that he is off freeze oh man mm-hmm. and then um what happened was Dirk went to jail right when it started to to pop we had the video everything he looked like he was gonna take over the whole world he just went to jail for like three months so I had more time to focus on YG me and him really got into it as far as like in a good way like we got into like the zone and then working in LA was complicated because there was always kind of gang politics going on in right. LA so I was like yeah we gotta we gotta shift a little bit yeah. so that's when we moved to Atlanta. Atlanta and worked on that My Crazy Life there and we flew Mustang Ty Dolla Sign and Jeezy was in that's where all the magic happened and at the same time you know Dirk's manager was talking to Jeremiah's manager they were like yo how are you moving around so well now and he said oh I'm working with Sycamore so that's how I got Jeremiah. And Jeremiah started working with him next. You know? So how much of his album that he just put out, Late Nights the Album, did you work half, on? About half. And how do you feel about the final product? Um, I feel like it's still incredible. Mm-hmm. And people really love the album. I felt like it could have been timed better and mm-hmm. set up better. Yep. In you know, and like if that because it's pretty much the same album he had last summer. Mm-hmm. So if you would have put out that album last summer with "Don't Tell Him Out" and "Plans to Follow Up," you know what I mean? I feel like it was be better received commercially. Why do you think that that album didn't come out until now? You got you know I, th- I don't know maybe it's my fault maybe it's Def Jam's fault. I think that he has a lot of baggage with Def Jam, and I think that um. With an artist, you have to, as a label, with an A&R, you have to make them comfortable enough to put out an album and feel like you're going to do a great job, you know? Because, you know, like, when you, you, you know, you can't, you go and put out this record, you work on this album for four years, you, you build up a mountain in your head, and for you to just say, okay, that's ready to go, you got to you gotta feel like all systems are go, everything is right, and he didn't feel like all systems was a go, hmm. you know? But musically, he always knew he had the music, he just wanted to set up. You know, because we had, on the album, we had Planes, we had Don't Tell Them. All those records were on the album already. And with YG's music, how do you, the West Coast had been, like, 
pretty cold for a while. How do you go into a New York-based company? And, and now I know that Def Jam's like a little more LA-based. It's, it's New York-based. But it's still New York-based. Yeah. How do you go in there and tell guys like, um, who was it, uh, Pecos or Chris Atlas or Steve Bartles that like this is that, yeah. Yeah, that this is like really like the next thing up? Well, at first it was like, well, you know... He's doing too much work with DJ Mustard. You think, you know, we should get him in with, like, DJ Premier or something. Too wow. Much. Too much. That, that wow. Like, that was, like, a real thing. You know what I mean? I was just like, what do you want me to just leave him with the hottest producer to go work with Primo? <laughs> you know what I mean? What are you, out of your mind? I got I kind of blacked in the meeting. You know what I mean? I went too hard. And then, um, but the reason they gave me the freedom is because of my nigga. Because when that, when that record hit, um, they, they didn't really believe in the song because they felt like, you know what? Who would play this on the radio? What would be the clean version? This is never gonna get heard. We like the song, but like it's not a single. You know, and, and there was a process of convincing everybody like the single. You know, first like you had to get the internal team on board because it had two Atlanta artists. Mm-hmm. But that's what helped it break nationally. You know, because the, the the let me go back a little bit. With YG, he was like it was like running for president, mm-hmm. and he had all the West Coast already. You know, what I mean? he had Arizona, he had Vegas, he had California, he had all that. Now the goal was how are we going to get to the rest of the country? How do we make him not a local artist? So the, the plan was let's go work in Atlanta and we'll double down in the South, right? And that's why the first single had two Atlanta artists in it because that's what we were working. And that helped break that record in Atlanta first, then it broke in LA. But wasn't it also like Jeezy wasn't supposed to be on it? Oh, no, Jeezy, we gave the record to Jeezy. We wanted a little Wayne on it. Wow. First we wanted two chains on it. Two chains said he's gonna do it. Then we was like, we want little Wayne on it. So we gave it to Jeezy. He's like, can you get Wayne on it? Because that, 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 um, that hook is kind of like a, a Wayne freestyle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's a you know really. And um, so it was like, you know, we're gonna show love. So when we got the record back, Jeezy was like, I just did my own verse. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and it was fire. How well did you know Jeezy at that point? I didn't know at all. So I was like a little intimidated at first. You know what I mean? But then. Again to talk to him, you know, because I have my own process. Mm-hmm. I'm like, the, the one session I think that we really started clicking is like um, we're in patchwork and there's mm-hmm. a bunch of, multiple rooms in patchwork. Mm-hmm. And so there's a studio session over there. I had a, a studio over there that Mustard was in. I had another studio that Tory Lanez was in. Mm-hmm. And I had the session where YG was in. And they were all working at the same time. And Tory Lanez was working on a hook for the Who Do You Love beat. It wasn't Who Do You Love at the time. We needed a, a verse of that. And Mustard was working on some BPT, I think, in the other room. And, Jeezy, and YG was right in here. So he walked around. He saw everything moving. He pulled me to the side like, yo, man. You know what I see when I look around here? A lot of money being wasted. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's like we're in a small room. And it's just us two. Man. And he think he slid his sunglasses on. You know what I mean? So it was, so. I was explaining to him, like, no, it's a process. And then the more he started coming around and started hearing the music, he started believing in the yeah, process. Yeah. And he really came in as, like, a big brother and a mentor and started showing us, like, I, I love... GD has one of my uh, favorite albums. One of my all-time, like, I'm on a Desert Island albums. Yeah. With, um, with, um, what's it called? Thug Motivation 101. 101, mm-hmm. yeah. I love that. I think that's the best trap album ever. And I, I mean, love, it's the original one. Set the bar, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. kind of. You can throw trap music in there. But the current trap sound mm-hmm. is kind of like that. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? And then the, I love um, The Recession. Mm-hmm. I think that's an amazing yeah. album, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think so. I, I, love, I love Trap or Die. Yeah. You know, there's a great bodies of work. So, like, we started buying music. I didn't know how musical he was. Like, he's really, like, methodical about music. So, we kind of really started vibing. And, you know, he, he really he freed me up a little bit and gave me, like, the confidence to keep going. Like, no, you could... 
quarterback this. I'm following you. And that was, that was cool. Is there – obviously, uh, YG is – he's under CTE, right? He, he did a partnership with Pushes Inc. and CTE. And so was – was Jeezy able to go into Def Jam and use his weight a little bit to oh, push yeah, things definitely. around? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, he, he was like, oh, you guys don't want to shoot the video for my head? We'll shoot it ourselves. You know what I mean? Like, you guys got to help push this record. He really helped move everything. He he was a big brother that really... Because none of us had the experience putting out an album. Not me, not Mustard, not YG. Mm-hmm. We're all young. So, you know, you know, when you were trying to win a championship, you need a mix of, like, youth, stars, and veterans. Sure. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. He, he was, like, he was, he was a star and a veteran. So he, he really championed us all the way. And then Who's t- the one that came up with my hitter? Jeezy. Jeezy came up with that. And then fast forward to <clears throat> the release party, or the, the listening at... Um, the Converse space in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and he pulls you on stage and says that you were A and R of the year. Oh yeah, that was crazy. And that was cool because my mom was there, so it was like a cool night. But it was such a good feeling in the room, and you—it was the first time like a lot of us got to hear the full album, mm-hmm. and it felt like something new and something fresh. And Steve Bartles is there, and everyone just feels real good about it. Um, and that single at that point might have been number one. Or, it was getting, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it have been number one. Um, but so this is early. Did you ever consider the fact that maybe for you, not only would this be a new classic album, but also be something that maybe could have been Grammy nominated? And that was one of the goals in the studio. We wanted to be nominated for the Grammys. We were like, we'll never win a Grammy because of politics. But as long as we get nominated for a Grammy, that was like... That was one of the things we were working towards in the studio actively. We were like, you know, it was a slow year for hip hop. We felt like we had a great album. You know, it was like we, you know, like even if we don't win it, we should definitely get nominated. Well, wait, well, what? I mean, like we should go back and say, like, what is it? What does that conversation mean? Like when you say like we should make a Grammy nominated album, like what does it take to make a Grammy nominated album in well, in today's day and age? Besides the politics, so we obviously don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know, when you're in the studio, you can, you gotta like. Your goals, you have to align your goals differently. You know, like, you guys watch sports a lot? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm a big Phil Jackson fan. Yeah. You know, and I love what he's doing. Wouldn't it be great if I was just like, who? <laughs> <laughs> and Phil, Phil, the thing about Phil, you know, he, Phil and, um, and um, who's the coach of UCLA who won all those championships? Um, John Wooden, John right? Wooden, yeah. One thing about Phil and John Wooden, they're more about playing the game the right way, mm-hmm. and the success will come from playing the game the right way versus trying to run up the score and win the game. Right. It's like focus on how to play the game. So that's kind of like how my approach in the studio. Like, you know what I mean? Like, John always says the score doesn't matter as long as you're playing the game the right way. Mm-hmm. And Phil's always like, well, we're in the triangle. You're gonna, it's going to be fine. So in the studio, it's kind of like you can't focus on we need a hit record because you'll never get a hit record. You can't focus on we need a new single. We need to do this. You just have to focus on the idea that you started with. So the idea with that album was make an album that matched narrative wise and sonically you know that was the idea behind that album and so we had to make it match a whole story and it had to be like the inverse of Kendrick so mm-hmm. Kendrick was like in the house we're out the house and that was our take with Mustard's production and you know it was like that brain trust of Mustard YG Jeezy and myself so we knew when we, we got it so when we finished the album we knew that we had a great album you know what I'm saying but mm-hmm. one of the things we wanted to do that the post things was like if we have a number one album if we have a Grammy nominated album and this is because it was really a labor of love mm-hmm. you know he's putting this album out so the day that 
the Grammy nominators, the Grammy nominees came in. I got a call from Mustard, and he was just screaming, and I couldn't tell if he was happy or sad. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Yo, man, what's, what the hell's going on?" I was like, "So did we get nominated? Or we didn't." He said, "No, nah, man, we didn't." And I was like, "That was like a real gut punch." Vibe. We were like. We was in the dark for like a little bit, a couple of days. But one good thing, we didn't expect all like the social media love and people kind of rallying. We right. had the protest that made us feel good. So we still had like the people's vote, yeah. you know, and that kind of it softened the blow. But it hurt a lot, you know. What I mean, we, I think it probably would have been more helpful if you guys had been um, if you put out a common album. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you put out, yeah, yeah, that was, and that was that was tricky too because I was on our label, you know. Yeah. What I mean? So yeah. it was just like we were just so confused at why we didn't get it. And we, I, I mean, I can tell you now, like I understand. Now, but I still don't really understand. We, so um, we we did all the politics. We did everything they told us to do. But you know, Dave Free from TDE, he really broke it down to me the best. He was, I was talking to him maybe a few days before the Kendrick nominations came out. And he said, "Yo, man, you got to understand. These people don't know nothing about hip hop. They just there checking off the names that they know. Boom, boom. Yeah. You know what I mean? And when he explained it to me like that, it made more sense. You know. So now it's like the, um, you got to find different." Markets to see like what what really matters. It's really a shame too because uh, Billboard magazine asked us to write up the top ten uh, albums of 2013. Uh, yeah, fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah. yeah, and and not only do we think that it should have been like Grammy nominated, we thought that was the best rap album of the year. Thanks. Yeah. It really like was the most complete project. I think it has the most resonance and and still lasts to this day. Yeah. And you can't say that about all the other projects. And that's it's just it's a shame that they don't get it right and they're consistently, you know, sort of screwy. I'm going to take the opposite view. Okay. I think the Grammys have always gotten it right. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like that this year it was a good year for hip hop, but I think they um they're close to this year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I agree. Kendrick and The Weeknd they're a lot they're a lot close I think Big Sean could have got nominated I agree too but, um, but I do think it takes that that snub by mm-hmm. YG to sort of like wake people up and move them first thing I thought you were going to say it takes a village and I was like it does yeah, take yeah, a village it takes a yeah. village but that's that snub had Kendrick a lot because when they snubbed him and it was such a big outroar, they were like, "Well, you know, they gave him that Grammy for uh, I the very next year." Yep, yeah. And now he's leading the the Grammy pack. So yeah. I think you know it, it kind of works in reverse. I guess it's like All Star Game when you get snubbed for the All Star Game and the next year they they vote you in. Yeah, sure. Like, yeah. Oh, we made a mistake last year. Well, you got to this year. <laughs> Could you make Macklemore happen? I mean, he's already happening. Yeah, I can't make it any more successful than he is. <laughs> no, he reminds me. He reminds me of, like atmosphere. I mean, yeah, but sure. but <laughs> like the commercial atmosphere. You're talking to two guys who've never listened to atmosphere. I mean, probably, <laughs> probably. So I mean, like, yes, sure, yes. He sounds like atmosphere to me. <laughs> um, so, so uh, you you do really well with that YG album. Um, the the little Dirk project was uh, heavily influenced by you, right? Yeah, worked on a lot of that, you know. But I, I didn't get a really chance to close the album, right? So that you know, and a lot of the finishing the album is in the close because a lot of things come up like sample clearances mm-hmm. and the last minute songs. Like a lot of the album, like the YG album, all the skits happen at the last minute. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We worked on those skits for like three months. You know what I'm saying? So it was like I didn't get a chance to close the Dirk album, so I was kind of like I was sad about that in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, but, but that but that was the price I had to pay to go to epic so we're in la a year ago and uh we were at nightbird studio and we asked you to come down and listen to some of our stuff Mm -hmm. and we're like what's going on what's new and you're like i'm gonna have some news coming up real soon i had some meetings that changed my life yeah and um 
this was so I think you were were referring to the Revolt Music Conference that you went down to mm-hmm. in Miami and uh, we put on Twitter we we posted someone someone shot video of you um, talking about what the A and R process is like and what you think it should be in in at that time 2014. You know when we worked on YG's record, he was doing his thing in L.A. and he's running around. And I sat down. I'm like, hey, play me your album. He's like, album? I only know mixtapes. You know what I mean? And I had to sit down and say, listen, let's go to Atlanta. Let's stay for three months and let's listen to a bunch of old albums. Let's listen to Life After Death. You never heard that. Let's listen to Ready to Die. Let's listen to all these old records. And it became an education process, you know? And then his goals changed. And it wasn't like, let me drop a mixtape to get hot. It was like, I want to make it classic too. I want to make a great record. And then you get in the studio and then it becomes something else. And you get mustard in the studio and then you're like, Yo, man, like, I want to be the best producer in the world. I want to do this. And it's like, well, we got to make something that's going to rival 2001 or we got to rival Kendrick. And I think the problem with these new artists is they don't feel like they're going to benefit from the label because everybody's talking about monetization and not talking about the art. Like, back in the day when you had these guys like Michael Jackson and Prince, they were competing with each other. It wasn't like, who's going to sell the most records? It was like, who's better? <laughs> you know what I mean? Who's, who's going to be the dopest? You know what I mean? And that's, we got to get back to the sport of what we're doing, and even with black music, because then, like, even the Jeremiah record that you mentioned, Jeremiah's in the studio, and he's like, man, uh, man, they uh, they took me off this Kid Ink record, the main chick, they took me off uh, whatever the other Kid Ink record was. I'm gonna show them I can make a better record, you know? And that's how we came up with Don't Tell Them, you know what I'm saying? Or when we're in the flow in the studio, and we have three studios working at the same time. We're trying to make a record about friendship and switch homie Kwan. YG tells them the idea and they go in the other room. We work on the verse three times. We come out with my nigga. You know what I'm saying? Or when we did Who Do You Love, we got the beat, right? And then Cheesy comes in the studio like, this beat's a hit. I don't care what y'all do to this. So we came up with four hooks before we got to Who Do You Love. You know what I mean? Then he did the verse three times. Then it took us 20 other sessions just to get the bridge going. You know what I mean? It's, it's because the goals are not about monetization. The goal is about we want to be the best. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. And I think from there, then you're going to get something that translates and the people feel it. Then, it. then people feel it through, I don't care how they hear it, through Spotify, through the radio, through whatever. They feel the emotion because they felt what we felt when we were in the studio. And I think if you want to really break through, we have to really become more of an educational house. We have to look at ourselves like directors with actors or with coaches with athletes. How do I make them better? You know what I mean? Like, you know what? Don't shoot from three. You're not going to make it all the time. You need to play the post a little bit. You know what I mean? You know, you got to stay on topic a little bit more. You know, you over there is rapping about everything. You know what I mean? It's, a, it's an artist development process that I think is missing from the front line of the a and thing. And, and, and we are going to die if we lose that process. I love On that panel, among other people, was L.A. Reid. What happened after that speech? Everything went real fast after that speech. Because when I walked out, it was kind of like, yo, it was crazy, it was crazy. You know what I mean? And the rest of the weekend, everybody was like really like, everywhere I go, I was like, everybody was talking like 20 people. I, was, I, was, I felt crazy. I never felt nothing like that. But then when I was literally walking out of there, I saw Travis checking into the hotel. So I'm like, yo, what you doing here? You know, I was like, oh, I got to perform. And then, so we ended up hanging out the whole weekend after that. And because I think on this, when I talked to us Friday, we left on Sunday. 
And it was me, him, and we just kind of like, and yes, Jules at the time, actually. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that's the first time I met her. Mm-hmm. And we just talked about, I was like, what's up with your album? He was telling me about it. He was talking about the success of Days Before Rodeo. And mm-hmm. he was like, yo, why don't you come? We were talking about, we were talking about, Rodeo and his ideas for rodeo and how to make it and things like that and it started off innocent. He's like, "Yo, if I had a house like yours, I could just finish my album in a house." And like, "Yo, we should do the album. We should just do it right here in Miami. We should just go finish it. We should just do this." And it was just like, "Okay." It started. It started spiraling. It was like a snowball turned into an avalanche by the end of the weekend. And because at the time I was having a lot of success at Def Jam, but they feel they were still trying to play me a little bit. I think. Mm-hmm. And um. A lot of changes went on at Def Jam too. There's a lot going on, you know, and um, this was kind of cool, you know, and Epic, and, and not Epic, but like, yeah, Epic and Travis was really crewing, and LA started hitting me, and I met with LA, and I was like, oh yeah, this is dope, and I met with Atlantic too, because I was at Atlantic, and that made me feel good, because that was kind of like full circle, yeah. right? That's another thing that was kind of cool, like, yeah, like, that, that was all full circle, it was just <laughs> like, I felt like, okay, cool, like, at least I wasn't a total failure if they asked me back, you know yeah, 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 you know what I mean, so then, um, although Fat Beats doesn't exist anymore, so you have to go run into Craig Kalman <laughs> somewhere else, so. exactly, exactly, <laughs> I mean, he, he, was, he was on there with uh, LA, yeah, 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 you know what I mean, and then, um, and then, uh, it was just like, it was like, either just go and continue what you did at Def Jam, or kind of jump out your comfort zone and go, do this thing with Travis yeah. and you know and at this point as I get older I only go with my gut now like this feels real good I'm gonna go over here you know and I, I mean I didn't just do decisions by myself I talked to a lot of people they helped me you know pick and I right you went with their guts yeah I went with their guts <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then um, and then boom like the second I, start, I signed up I took like a vacation I came back and we just started working on Rodeo and so we met I mean we've known Travis for I don't know like a a while we knew Travis when he still smiled so like (laughs) is he still um, fun like is he he, he, you know what it was it was a lot of pressure working on Rodeo Mm because days before Rodeo was was really critically acclaimed and you know people really had some high expectations for him so we took that process real serious so we had fun but it was also like we needed to get the work done Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and it was like two months in the studio here, one month on the rodeo tour. The rodeo tour was the craziest thing we ever experienced. Like mm-hmm. that was like nothing. Every single night, yeah, that was just like like we were just in awe. Then from there, we worked in another house studio for two months. Then we worked in Mike Dean's house for two months. Then yep. we put out the record. It was it was insane, and it was just a lot of pressure. You know, going to the top. How many chefs are in the kitchen at that point? Travis is the chef. That's it. That's it. <laughs> He's the main chef. Everybody else is it's just Travis. You know what I mean? My role with Travis is different than YG. Like with Travis, I just try to like he's really special, man. As far as musically, like because he's he's a producer, he's an artist, he's, he 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 could he could paint, he could do it all. So the thing with him is just like listening to him. Like sometimes he was the idea would sound crazy. Like yo, I want to I want a doll to be my album cover, and I want a doll to be the packaging. So if you're just thinking very in the box, you're like, oh, well, that can't happen. That's never been done before. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you got to be like, why can't we have a doll as a yeah. packaging? You know, because we really wanted a doll as the album. Right. You bought the physical doll and that's how you got the album with like a USB. That was our plan. You know what I mean? So it was really like. Yeah, he was upset that that didn't happen. That, that, was, cause that was the moment. That yeah. was everything that we we're leading up to that didn't bring it all in. You know, so like with him, it's really just like giving him the tools mm-hmm. like you know if you use yellow paint it'd be kind of crazy mm-hmm. just watch him do the magic you know what I'm saying He he he's special like that yeah. you know my, and Mike Dean Mike Dean came at the end and really closed it out right. because we weren't going to be able to close it out together so same thing with that GZ role Mike mm-hmm. Dean played that one yeah. Mike Dean was just like 
the album is over and he showed us how to finish the album watch this guy sit there smoke play five instruments play the keyboard play the guitar never lose the blunt out of his mouth it was just amazing we were played an early version of 3500 mm-hmm. and then we heard the Mike Dean version mm-hmm. and the difference is crazy because day. you know Mike Dean comes in he's like okay I'm gonna make this make sense when he did 3500 that was the first one he did for us mm-hmm. that's when it was like oh Mike Dean has to do the whole album mm-hmm. so I called him one day I was like yo man what? You, you, you think about executive producing the album? <laughs> and he was like, hell yeah. And so I just, I worked on that deal for like three weeks and I just talked with all the lawyers and everything and then finally, you know, gave Travis to give it his blessing. Yeah. And he was like, okay, cool. We're doing everything in your house though. We're taking this whole operation <laughs> and going to Varick Street. And he's like, cool, you know? And then, we literally stayed in his house for a month <laughs> and watched like somebody who's just absolutely magical work, and it was just amazing watching him do play all those instruments, the process he had with the board, and he was, and he had a couple of assistants, but he was like really a, a one man band. And yeah. then Travis would get in, and Travis would add his parts, and it was just the magic just started happening. You know, that's what you fight for. That's the, you know, it's the reason you work in the music business, any kind of creative business, you work for that. That little space of magic that you can't that you can't explain. They made it the loudest album. Like that album's the loudest album of all time. <laughs> I, just, I want anybody to play that album versus any album ever created in the history of life. We definitely have the loudest album ever. He, they they put the album right to the tip, <laughs> right there. You know, so that that was an amazing process. So like you know. Trav, Trav and I took it as far as possible. Then, you know, Mike Dean took the ball at the end and, you know, he really took it home. So now that the Travis project is done, what are you focused on? Oh, actually, before we get to that, when you left Def Jam, we talked to YG and we're like, this has to be really a bummer. And he was like, nah, but we're good, though, because I got a special situation with Sycamore where yeah, he can yeah, still yeah. work with me on my project. Well, it's not that technical. You know what I mean? It was just kind of like, you know... You know, I'm a hip hop kid first. Like, you know, my name's Sycamore. I got a nickname. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm part from the of Biggie the, song. Yeah, yeah. I'm part of the culture and part of you can't just I can't just go do an album like that with somebody like, well, now I work for another label, so I can't <laughs> technically work with you because my contract will be breached. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> it'll be be whack for the sake. We have to at least try to top that. You know what I'm saying? So whatever. I don't need like an official capacity. We will could work something out, but I'll just do. I would do that album for nothing. You know what I mean? Because I really want to continue that process i would do it for 3500 <laughs> <laughs> obviously every i think everyone's aware that like maybe things aren't exactly as they were between mustard and yg these days do you think that that's going to hurt yg's album whatsoever nah. or are you going to get him with dj premiere <laughs> <laughs> i think i think i think they're going to get back together and really get some work because mustard worked on the album really early mm-hmm but um, I think later on the road, the schedule started getting crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, it always goes topsy-turvy, but mm-hmm. they're like, you know, they're like any two great players. They're like Westbrook and Durant. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? They're going to go up and down. But it's nothing that's like, you know, they can't come back. Like, there's no, nothing crazy. Does it's, that make you Billy Donovan? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see on both ends. Either Westbrook comes back and if Billy Donovan gets to the championship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what are you working on with Epic right now that the, the rodeo project is all... Rant. Well, Travis starts back next week. Really? Yeah, because he has a, he's going on the Rihanna tour. Right, correct. So we got to get right back to work. Does that mean you're going on on the Rihanna tour? Feels like it. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are you looking cool. forward to that? Oh, yeah. I've been on tour with Rihanna. What's that like? You, you got an jet thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you almost die? I heard about that. Oh, it was the worst. It was like the worst. Ex- but the best experience was going to my high school reunion right after it. <laughs> and I walked in there and I was just like... The king. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> yeah, like I was like, I had the best time on the Rihanna plane. <laughs> 
<laughs> Shout out to everybody who works at delis and hair salons. Um, <laughs> Those tweets were incredible, man. It was one week. It was seven no, countries. The, the tweets, like, why, oh, oh, the why, tweets. Yeah, watching you guys go. You guys were like by the by the third country. You guys were fucked. Yo, <laughs> Complex put together like a um like a list of like uh, or five like pages of everybody tweeting from the plane, mm-hmm. like a whole timeline. And every single one of my tweets for a week straight is just, I'm dying, <laughs> I'm dead. Like, what made it so bad? Not being fed, not sleeping. Um, you can't just get your own food? Not when you're stuck on the runway waiting for Rihanna when she's shopping in Paris for like six hours. Was she on the same plane as you? Yeah. Was she nice? I, I wouldn't know. She spilled champagne on me, but like she was she was in um she was in first class. I didn't see her like off the plane for like a week. Because or on the plane rather. It was basically like like Gabe and Gabby just like leading like a whole yeah, like, camp group, right? Yeah. So three hundred people on a plane. Yeah. Um three hundred. Three hundred. Because there's hundred and fifty writers from all around the world and then hundred and fifty fans, like super fans. And so then there's uh, in every single country, we were running behind schedule because Rihanna would be like backstage with Stella McCartney for three hours, or like you know shopping in Paris, or and you're going from plane to venue to plane to venue to like hotel for yeah. a second to yeah. Do you get do you get hotels every city? No. So like you know we were in um we were in Mexico City. Uh, I'm sorry, we were in London, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Mexico City, and Toronto in one day. <laughs> we were in Los Angeles, Mexico City, and Toronto in one day. Then we went to uh, Stockholm. We get a hotel in Stockholm. That's cool. I've never been to Stockholm. <laughs> I mean, I didn't see the sun for a week, so it was it was fine. Um, I, I got a uh, Mexican food in uh, Toronto because I didn't get any Mexican food in in Mexico. <laughs> and then from Stockholm, we went to Paris. We got a hotel there. Um, but then the next day, we went from Paris to Berlin to London in one day. So you didn't get a chance to hang out in Berlin or anything? No. I mean, the only, we were in the venue, and they were all small venues. It was 2,000 people at most. Um, and that venue was a, um, what was it? It was a, a former detention center for Jews during the during World War II. So it's not like a super real, chill real good luck. Yeah, vibe. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we went to London, and I didn't go to the show because I was so tired. Yeah. Um, and we could stream it online, which was awesome. It was the first time we had had like Wi Fi. Um, so nobody went to that show. There were people who went. I definitely didn't, though. I, I was like, "What am I going to see that's different?" Like, we'd seen the same show six times, and then like <laughs> we went to um, New York, and I sat on my. I got home. Uh, Eric, my uh, Eric, our brother Dan, and our friend Shinsuke were here, and I went in my room. I dropped off my luggage, and I came back, and I told them all about it. And then I sat in my bed because I was about to go down to like Webster Hall or whatever the show was. And I couldn't get up because I was just so like, yeah. you know, being on a plane for a week. Like it, it was just like so shitty, just being on the on the runways. And then we went down to Washington to our aunt's place for Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, and you were so happy because you were getting fed. Yeah. Oh my god. And then the next day we came back to New York, and you had your your high school reunion. Yeah. And I and every single person was like, oh my god, like I just read this thing about you being on a plane with Rihanna, and I was just like. I mean, I looked terrible. Like I hadn't, I, I, I don't have any weight to lose, and I, I lost so much weight, and, um, and I walked in there, and I was just so, like, yo, shouts to Def Jam, <laughs> yeah. So it was a good idea on paper because when he, when he told you that, he's like, oh, this is the best play ever, right? Listen, I mean, oh no, I mean, I knew from the beginning that I was gonna be tired and not good, but no, but it, it sounded like a cool thing. You're like, I'm gonna go yeah. to seven cities. It's gonna I'm gonna be... be able to see things like that'd be sure. cool, like going to Paris, nope. like no, like <laughs> I, I ditched the after party that um she was supposed to actually like interact with people. 
um, because uh, it was at like two in the morning and I was like, yeah, like I'm going to go get food. Like that's going to be dope. <laughs> um, and so I got food in Paris and everybody else went to this private party with Rihanna and it was supposed to be the first time that people could interact with her. But instead, she invited um, Akon and Diddy and Cassie and all these people and everybody who wanted to, like, talk to her was shoved by security. And so, like, it wasn't even, like, a cool a cool thing. So, there was scheduled, like, scheduled time to talk to Rihanna? Like, like to, to, like, be in the same, like, atmosphere as her. Like, because there was supposed to be a a, um, a press conference on the plane did um, did by get... day four. And she was just, like, not into it. <laughs> did anybody get left, like, in the city? Uh no, but there was one guy from Huffington Post, shout to Kia, who um who wisely decided not to go past Toronto. <laughs> oh, he's smart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But some people just like showed up in the middle of the tour, right? There was one guy from Israel who was suddenly my seatmate. <laughs> he was like, Hey, I'm I'm here now and I was like, Okay. <laughs> like, who are you? <laughs> That's kind of it's kind of insane. Actually. But like it's, yeah. in in retrospect, I think in terms of marketing opportunities, it's like a cool idea and mm-hmm. and different from what other you know labels or people are doing but what cities did you get a chance to chill in than just london and paris i chilled in london because i had left um the activities or whatever uh, i'm sorry uh, paris and then london i sat in the hotel room and i watched the um the thing i i, I think we went out for like a second but yeah london and paris basically and then new york i chilled for so long it's <laughs> 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 like yeah no um but yeah like it was uh it was a weird experience and then like um you know you had people getting on the radio the next day being like like calling ebro and being like oh like everybody's complaining but i don't know why and it's just like why are you selling us out like that well then and then they did that that uh documentary for fox right which you know you condense seven days into like whatever half an hour program right and there was like so there was a riot on the plane there was a guy from australia this dj running around the plane naked why because okay so what started was shock jock right yeah but what had started was that rihanna's in first class we haven't seen her in uh you know five days at this point on the plane four days and everybody's freaking out. They're just like, what the fuck? Like, why are we on this plane for five days? And we're supposed to be covering Rihanna, but we never see her. And so uh, people started screaming for her to come out. <laughs> and so there's this whole chant of, you know, like, uh, I think like it's all like journalist nerds who are just like, <laughs> like just one question or something. And it's just like, I'm not screaming. I'm just like, fuck this. Like, I don't I don't give a fuck about any of this. And so uh, I'm a real joy to have. <laughs> And so, uh, so this guy, um, like, uh, so everybody's screaming. Finally, like, um, this guy just jumps up and starts running around, uh, naked. The entire, like, 300 people, like, all rows. He just runs through them all. And then Steve Bartles comes out and, like, the entire first class, and they're just standing there, like, what, like, mouths wide open, just like, what is going on? And then, um, and then that was probably the, the most fun. <laughs> How long did he run around naked for? Not, not super long. It wasn't like him, like for half an hour, just like <laughs> we're doing it, another lap. Um, no, it was probably like I don't know, t- uh, two, three minutes. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, that's pretty. Awesome. But then they put that on. on oh yeah, Fox. so they put a, the documentary together, and they say, you know, like Rihanna. Th- first of all, they said like this is what it's like to tour with Rihanna. And it's like, well, no, it's not. Like she was sleeping. Like she had, <laughs> she had food. And then, yeah, like, they, they put it up, and, and they said, like, oh, there was, like, this crazy naked guy, but, like, there's no context to it, so it was just... Oh, yeah, so they, and, missed, they missed the whole chant. 
<laughs> all of that. Like, they, it wasn't like, you know, there was no reason for it. It was just like, it's a party up in, you know. Mm-hmm. But you guys got it off on social media, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yo, my following account, like, <laughs> went through the roof. Well, and most importantly, the Jeff Jam, that was the number one album. So. Yeah. Yo, that was so fucked up, though. So, like, I'm writing these, like, horrible recaps from the sky, being like, I'm having a terrible time. And then on the last day, uh, I think Gabe sent an email being like, congratulations, we got to number one. <laughs> Uh, like, thanks, Gabe. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Um. So okay. So so the next the next Travis project you're a part of, obviously the next YG project tangentially you're involved. However you are. Yeah. Any other artists that you're still working with that you're gonna make famous? I don't know. All right. You got any ideas? Uh, it's the real. It's the real. Yeah. 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 Um, What's the vision? Let's come up with it right now. Oh, no, we we got the vision. We'll tell you off mic, but okay. yeah. <laughs> it's just like 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> um, but everyone over at Epic's treating you well, and you're... Yeah, Epic's cool. That's you know what I mean? Who else is signed there? Megan Trainer. Yep. Future. But you're not working with Megan Trainer. Not yet. Wow. I'm okay. just kidding. No, yeah. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not ever working with Megan <laughs> Could you work in the studio with uh, Future? Is that a possibility, or is that somebody else's... No, I think that's somebody else. I think L.A. Reid kind of handles that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you know what it is? Like, after YG and Travis, it's like, you know, I want to just make sure I keep the bar pretty high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm trying to, um, you know, I want to make sure that their next albums come out really airtight mm-hmm. and then see, like, who else comes up in this whole little space. You know what I mean? So I'm hoping that somebody just, like, pops up. Mm-hmm. But you know, but you're also not, like, not working with, like, established acts. Like, you wouldn't come in to, like, save, like, a Diddy career sort of thing. No, you know, you never know. That'd be cool, though. That'd be cool, It'd though. Be cool for New York, you know. That'd yeah, be real cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be a moment. It would, cause it, it was just I would look at that like you know like as a as, like as you know like you're a, a young director and you can come and do like some like small like um, roles, some movies that popped up, then you get a chance to do like some huge movies. It'll be a cool challenge, but I think that um, I think at this point I really like the idea of working with new acts. It comes back to that same theme of like you know nobody believes in us, so right. very few people believe. Yeah, and making the whole world believe. I think that's it, so that is like the the greatest um, feeling to me. You know, like just that's just like the best watching these guys blow up big. And I just feel like if I can stay in that because you know when you work with somebody's like fifth or sixth album, you don't really get that much credit as an A and R. You're really just protecting. The success, you know what I'm saying? Like whoever did A and R that, actually I know A and R that album. Like whoever like A and R's who are somebody's eighth album, people don't care anymore. Right. They they care when it's like fresh and new. How do you feel coming back to New York? By the way, like does it feel like home still, or are you more like you're such a West Coast guy now? What's it called? Um, <laughs> New York is kind of cool because it's like when you come home now, that everybody has to like make time for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's, very, it's like you know, it feel like going to a class reunion every time. Yeah. So it's cool. Sometimes you come here, you stay in a hotel, mm-hmm. you stay by your mom's house, you go chill. Like you know what I mean? It's like I actually love coming back to New York. Mm-hmm. But um, and this this year made me love New York again because I was over in New York the last couple of years. For real? Yeah, it was like. Are you saying that because it's like seventy degrees out right now? I was about now? to like, say, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because you know, it, it's hard for it's hard when we were coming up in New York. It was a lot different. It was you know things were a lot cheaper. You know what I mean? So you can afford to put on small shows. There's more venues, more things to mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. So everybody's kind of getting priced out of doing of the culture's getting priced out. So to do something in New York, you either have to have some big artists doing it, or you have to go uptown mm-hmm. or like deep in Queens. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So. It's not enough of a of a scene like a running around scene like that scene doesn't really exist like that in New York anymore. Right. I think that's when Travis had a show. I saw a lot of those kids like finally have an outlet. Yeah. But yeah. you know they have the forty ounce van with the brunch bounce. Yep. Those really helped too. 
mm-hmm. but you know like I, I need that I need that I need that energy mm-hmm. like um I was in Trinidad for like the last 10 days and they have like a real we're coming up energy Miami mm-hmm. has like a real we're coming up energy Toronto has a real scene does um, LA have that? LA has a scene too yeah cause you, you can still afford to like be a starving artist in LA you can afford to be a starving artist in all those cities you can't really afford to be a starving artist in New York no I mean well you can put all your money towards rent and then literally be starving. <laughs> yeah. you, you'll never get anything done. And yeah. New, New York, it's New perfect. York, New York has become like the first like billionaire city. Right, it has become Bloomberg's dream. So it's like it's, that. That part hurts. Yeah, but the run around New York, the the woman, the, everything like that. That's like that's incredible. Still, I, just, um, I wouldn't live here again though. No. Mm. Wow. Even if our third bedroom uh, opens up? <laughs> well, maybe I could afford it then. <laughs> Just before you go, you're a big movie guy, a lot of metaphors about movies. Um, what uh, what would you say are three movies that people should watch? Just ever? Mm-hmm. Sure. I don't know. I'll tell you my favorite movies. My favorite movies are Casino, um, Fight Club, mm-hmm. and Beautiful Mind. I think those are my three favorite movies. I love those movies. Pretty good. My my two favorite movies, All the President's Men and mm-hmm. Big Lebowski. That's a good one. Yeah. You, Jeff? Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, Godfather and Wet Hot American Summer. All right. So why'd you pick Godfather 1 versus 2? Um, I mean, I could go for the first two. That'd be fine. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I would not choose. Yeah. Godfather Part 3 <laughs> and, okay. and Wet Hot American Summer. Yo, just for the record, I like, I like, like, I love one just like I love two. Like, and if one is playing, I'll just sit down and watch it. Because I think, I love the foundation. I just, like, you know, like to know. Even yeah. even though the first one, like, goes but, before. But and, two feels like a day. Like, two is, like, you're sitting down and you're, like, really dedicated to. Yeah. I, I'm sure it's not, like, much longer than the first one. But it is split up. It feels like a commitment because it feels like, it's no intro. It's just, like, you're right back. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. When I watch Godfather 2, like, I feel like I'm ready to go, like, take over a small country or something. <laughs> you know? Or Italy. Yeah. Actually, wait. So, do, you are a very Phil Jackson type. Do you give books to any of your artists? All of them, all the time. Because why do they read them? YG reads them. <laughs> you know, I give I give Travis like more like uh, like photo books and things like that because he's very like more in the moment. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I really give kind of books to everybody who's around. I buy mm-hmm. books for a lot of people all the time. Like I, I love buying books for people. That's mm-hmm. my favorite thing to do. And it's, it, you know, I've seen the Matrix when yeah. they, like they they, they 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 put something in their head and it just comes in their head. Like you know, like I'm gonna learn karate. That's yeah. how I feel about books. Um, I was gonna say, if, if it feels like the Matrix, you should just give Travis pills. Yo, sick. Thanks for coming through. Thanks, Adam. Yeah. yeah. Thanks everyone for listening to this classic episode of A Waste Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about us. I'm Eric with the curly hair. You're Jeff with the glasses. Together we are It's The Real. No apostrophe, no space. If people want to find out more about this podcast, it's called A Waste of Time with It's The Real. Jeff, people want to find out more about what's going on with us. Where can they go? You can always go to itstherial.com, I-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-A-L.com. You can catch up with us on Twitter at It's The Real or on Instagram at It's The Real. Say you're looking for any of our episodes. They are on all streaming platforms. I'm talking about Spotify. I'm talking about Google. I'm talking about CastBox. I'm talking about iTunes and especially YouTube.com slash It's The Real where you can watch every episode of Quarantine Radio, our daily podcast that we've been doing through this whole coronavirus thing. Yes, the first quarantine radio. The yep. original Shout out to us. quarantine radio. As always, guys, not for real, for real. Sure, sure. See you guys tomorrow. Brrrah!